Listening Dog Media. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? Last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Offside Rule. We get it. With Lindsay Hooper. Hello and welcome to our first ever The Offside Rule We Get It podcast. Each week I'll chat to someone from the footballing world, be it a player, manager or significant other, I'll keep you guessing, and promise to get plenty of opinion on some hot topics. This week it's Barnett and former Fulham and Northern Ireland boss Laurie Sanchez. Plus I'll hold my very own round table every week where I speak to friends who I work with in football and debate the finer points of the beautiful game. Finally, if you're an aspiring sports broadcaster, stay tuned to the end of each podcast and I'll be speaking to colleagues and peers as I'm on the road and give you some further insight into landing your dream job. This week it's match of the day commentator Steve Bauer. Thanks to everyone who's involved with this podcast so let's get on with it. If you're a football fan whether you're male, female or alien this podcast is for you to enjoy and if you don't then please email your complaints to keysandgray at talksport.co.uk or we're kicking off with my interview with Laurie Sanchez. The female take on football. I'm at Barnett's training ground, The Hive, with manager Laurie Sanchez, who's kindly taken some time out to talk football. We'll start with the Premier League season, five weeks in, and already it looks like the Manchester teams are dominating. What have you made of it all? Well, Manchester United, obviously, you know, they were always going to be there and thereabouts. Um, anybody that finishes above Manchester United will win the title, I think. And Manchester City are the one team that look as though they've invested enough in their team. They've got a manager that's capable of doing it, and they've got players with, obviously, now capable of winning the title. So... I wouldn't be surprised, and I think anybody would be surprised that the two Manchester clubs would be top of the table come the end of the season. In which order? We've yet to make a, a decision on that. But obviously anything that Manchester City have done, Manchester United have topped it later on in the afternoon. So, as I say, if you finish above United, you win the title. Brings us on nicely, because the Premier League, yeah, a global attraction to it. Um, lots of money spent, and perhaps most of the, the big players around the world want to come and play here. However, you've got to look at La Liga for turning out the best players in the world at the moment, and certainly the Spanish squad. Uh, Barcelona, let's look at them as a side and talk about Champions League for a second, because we talk of these kind of purple patches and spells for different eras. You, you talk about your Manchester United era of Skulls, Gigs and mm. Beckham and Neville brothers. 
there seems to be something to this Barcelona squad at the moment, doesn't there? That means that they're going to have a few years of, at the top. Without doubt. And, you know, they do spend money. Um, so they can retain their top players, players like Messi. I think football there, there is an awful lot to do with the Catalan area. That it's more than football. It is. It is a sort of that. That's how those people in that part of the world hold their head high. So there's a lot of pressure on on the players, and they perform fantastically well for it. It is. Uh, you know, you can't. It's hard to compare teams because you can only be the best team you can at the era you're in. But I think they are probably the best. Well, they're certainly the best team of this generation, and probably would be up there. You know, with the Real Madrid team in the in the fifties. As probably the best team of all time, you know. So you you you've got to you got to give them fantastic credit, and they they have a system, and they're going to persevere with it, and and it's 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 brought them great success. I went to the Champions League final at Wembley, um, three hundred pound a ticket I paid. It was an expensive night, <laughs> but it was you know I'm, I got my brother a ticket, and he said three hundred pound for a game. I've never paid three hundred pound for a game in my life, but I'd go, but give me a ticket. So he came along, and he turned to me at half time and said, I've got to say that. I'd never have paid £300 for a ticket, but I've got to say this was worth it. It was well worth it. I'm pleased I was here to... Not just the game, but the atmosphere. I think a lot of things came together. I think Wembley came of age that game. I mean, I'd been to Wembley before, and it's it, you know, people were saying it wasn't the old Wembley, there's the atmosphere. But I think that night, the Champions League final, with the match on the pitch and the support on both sides, I thought um, they made a very, very, very good English team look very, very ordinary. And they did that at Real Madrid early in the season as well. From watching from the comfort of my sofa, where you'll be able to tell me from the stands, uh, one of the things that I find is this hysteria around Messi, which, of course, is justified. He's one of the greatest, and he will go down as one of the greatest players. But Barcelona as a squad, I mean, Daniel Elves and um, David Villa on that night, I just thought that there were, there were players... It wasn't all about Messi. There were just so many of them that were just playing out their skin, and it seems that his name just always comes top of the list. It does, because he scored 45 goals last season, doesn't he? I mean, you know, if you were to say Lionel Messi's a centre-forward, you wouldn't say he's a centre-forward at five foot five, um, He's not an archetype centre-forward. He doesn't play as an out-and-out centre-forward. He plays in this sort of wandering little position, um, but it's in the centre of the field. And to score 45 goals is phenomenal. And, and he turned that game with one piece of genius. There are some fantastic players in that squad, but when you see him close up, you can understand why he gets all the acclaim he does. But he himself, I think, has said um, the best player he's ever played with is, is Iniesta, isn't he? I think mm-hmm. he said he's the best player in the world. But you've got Iniesta and Messi in the same team and Silva, and you know, th- th- you just go through. I mean, the very fact that they played I was, the game the other night, they played nine midfield players or what you consider midfield players in some shape or form, either defensive or attacking midfield players. And Messi comes into that attacking midfield player type of scenario um, in their game. Um, and, and, and they won that 5-0 or 6-0, whatever it was, in the opening of uh, La Liga. Just shows what a phenomenal team they are. Um, so it's a fantastic club. Anybody who's been to the new Camp, I, I went there before we played the semi-final against Liverpool. Liverpool playing the UEFA Cup on the Thursday night and... So we were in Spain on a training camp and I went to New Camp to watch Barcelona play Liverpool that night and they were fantastic that night. And it's, a, it's just a fantastic city um, with a fantastic ground, with a fantastic football club, mm. with a fantastic team all at the same time. And, you know, it must be nice to be a Barcelona fan. Let's move on to England, a recent international break. And there is always speculation concerning Fabio Capello's replacement successor. The odds very recently shortened for Harry Redknapp to take over that role, which must cause some upset at Tottenham. I mean, for you as a manager, you wouldn't want that at your club, would you, all that speculation? Um, no, but it means two things. It means your manager's doing well. 
and the teams and if your manager's doing well, the team's doing well. So you you got to take it that if your manager's doing well, he's English. You know, there's probably going to be an English appointment next time round because not because of the backlash against um, Capello, but I think it's only right that a major nation has one of their owners, their manager. Um, not the best man for the job. No. No, um, you'd like to think that the best man for the job is is, is English, but I also, th- I mean, I think I, I read a quote from Gareth Southgate that he said, "International football is about the best English coach, the best English player, the best English doctor, best English physio, best English masseur, best English manager. If it's not, then you're playing Champions League." And I think he's right to a certain extent. I, I, I think I think I would I would agree with that. Um, you don't look at any other major nation in the world having a foreigner in charge of them. Isn't that quite ideal, though? Isn't that an ideal view? I mean, nowadays... But that should be the, that's, that's, that's what international football should be about. It should be the best of what you've got. And if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. And then you accept it and get on with it. I don't think... And it hasn't improved the situation bringing in Sven or Capello on the biggest international contracts in the world. They've still got to work with the same players. You know, and to bring in foreign staff, you know, they, they've done no better than Sir Ralph Ramsey, who won it in 66. So... You know, I, I think if you're going to fail, fail with English people in charge. Or not fail, but do the best you can with the English people in charge because that's what international football is about, international football. Do you think any of their shortcomings, whether we're talking about Sven or Capello, came because their heart wasn't quite in it, they hadn't got that English uh, kind of loyalty, if you like? Or do you think that this is a difficult squad of players to manage? I mean, your likes of... Terry, Gerard, um, Beckham even, and, and the papers and the attention that they get in the media frenzy. It's a hard group of players to manage, isn't it? Um, that's what they're paid for. That's why you paid £6 million. And, you know, it's not as if they haven't managed top players in their careers before. I mean, they've, they've, they've worked in Italy, you know, they've worked in Spain, they've won the championships. They're working with top players day in and day out. International management is a different job completely to club management. I think it takes you one campaign to learn it, and then you've got one campaign to do it. And you, if you win it, you might have another campaign. If you don't, then it has to be turned over again. It is a learning process, no matter where you've been. And I found that when I was in, when I was in Northern Ireland, it took me two years to find out all the ins and outs because you don't have a lot of time with a player. So you need to be able to bring down every training session to really dilute it to what you want to get out of it. Whereas I train every day here at Barnet with the players. You can spend a day mucking about here, mucking about there, doing stuff that is irrelevant. But every training session with an international team, you only get... Probably, if you're with a team 10 days, you probably get six or seven training sessions um, of any value where you've got every player available to you, you know, injuries free and that. And you've got to make, so that's an hour and a half. You've got eight, nine, ten hours every two months to make it count. Mm. Um, and you have to distill what you want down very, very specifically. And it takes you two years to learn learn that, no matter where you come from. Um, and then your second time round, you're hoping you're avoiding fitness. You've got a group of players you want. And then you go from there, you build on that. Um, and with England, as I say, you know, fourth in the world, they should be, with an average manager in charge, they should be quarterfinals, World Cup, European Championships every time. Um, European Championships should be further than that because they're, they're taking out the, the Brazils and Argentinas of this world. So you say, you say basically probably top four team in Europe, so they should be semifinals. Worldwide, World Cups, top eight team in the world, they should be quarterfinals. That should be their minimum criteria. It doesn't explain, though, the Capello and Sven era, really, does it? Because they didn't get much further than those stages. I mean, certainly the World Cup last time round was a massive disappointment. Just on reflection of all that, 
They were managers with great credentials and anyone around the world would have given their right arm to have them in charge of their national squad, which made me think, is there something pinpointed within this squad, within this framework? Within, is it passion? Is it dedication? Because there has to be something to explain why we're not getting any further. And do you honestly think, because I don't, that Harry Redknapp can get more out of them? What you would say is there's an awful lot of organisation and stuff that you never think of as a manager around preparing for a World Cup and, and Europe. I mean, the term used is competition-hardened. And what happens with, if you take the world champions, European champions, Spain, most of their players, Torres, Villa, Iniesta, Xavi, all these players, had won under-17, under-19, under-21 world and European youth championship titles. So they knew what tournament play was about. So they, you know, they didn't go into a tournament once every two years and suddenly find out what it was. They had progressed naturally through winning t- tournaments at youth level as a team... Um, in two-week, three-week periods of, of high-intensity football and knew how to get there. So when they stepped up to European and World Cups, it wasn't an awful lot different. Whereas England players, you, they all pull out of the under-21s. They all pull out of the, the, the one in um, Colombia, the under-20s this year. I mean, were there 20 pull-outs or something? Yeah. So those players never, ever get competition, you know, that three-week competition experience. And then you go to a World Cup finals and they're learning, they're learning like the manager for the first time what it's like, whereas the Spanish system has put that all in place. So when they come to the European Championship finals, they know exactly what to do. They know exactly that because they've won it at all previous levels and then they step up and win that, then they step up and win the World Cup and then they'll be favourites when we come back to the Europeans again. Um, and that is something that the English system lets down. And on that note, the European model sees the youth kind of squads develop up to 21 I mean here and you'll know from being at Barnet and the other clubs that you've been at like Fulham that players get released at their 18 and do you not think that that three-year gap could be closed and we could join Europe on that that level I understand what's saying I mean uh, for competitions by the time they're 21 I mean I once had a chat with David Platt and he I said was there a problem you know running under 21s when you've got some millionaires in there and then some players that aren't he said there was a problem with it when there were some players um, millionaires and some not, but he says not a problem now because they're all millionaires, and they basically are. You, you, you see that the biggest transfers this summer have gone to under twenty ones. You know Jones, um, Henderson, Henderson. You know that they, they, they've come back for on the back of the under twenty one. Not particularly great performances in it to be top paid players in the Premier League. So I don't think at that top level the development stops because what happens is they stop and play first team football, which isn't a major problem. But what should happen is they don't play under-21 international football, they go straight into the first international team. That's the problem, and, and something needs to be done. You know, you've got Theo Walcott was withdrawn from the under-21s and playing in the World Cup or in the England squad at, when he was seven, 17, when really he shouldn't have been there. He should have been developing. And by the time they come through at 21, they should have had 20 caps, under-21 caps under them, and then they step up to the first team. But we rush straight from, it's the great new talent, into the first team. And Theo Walcott, is he an England regular? Is he an Arsenal regular, even now? I mean, how many years later is this? Since Germany, 96, you know? And he's still, yes, probably a regular for Arsenal. He's still but dribbling and looking yeah, at his feet. Yeah. So, <laughs> on the few occasions I've seen. So there are, there are, there are you know, blaming the manager is one thing and, and the manager obviously falls or dies by where he finishes, especially when you're being paid that amount of money. But the system in place to support the manager is an awful lot of things has a lot to answer. And a lot of that to do is with how Premier League clubs treat international football all round. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. The Female Take on Football.
Next up, it's Lindsay's Round Table, and this week I'm joined by Zoe Aminsky and Kate Borsay to debate some footballing topics. As this is the very first The Offside Rule podcast, I think we should reflect on things so far this season. Let's start Premier League players and players that have impressed you. We'll start with Zoe. Well, I don't think you can even mention this subject without thinking Sergio Aguero. I mean, the fact that every time you see Man City have scored, you almost presume that Aguero will be on the score sheet to the extent that when he didn't score this weekend, there was shock when you saw that Man City had two goals and Aguero wasn't one of them. He just, I think, is a phenomenal purchase for Man City. And I think when you consider his transfer fee was similar to that of Andy Carroll... There's no question that Aguero, I think, was the the better purchase. I think that we haven't even touched on what he's capable of. And it'll be interesting, very interesting to see how he progresses over the season. I mean, we all knew that he was a great player in Argentina and uh, we've seen him playing alongside Tevez a few times in tournaments. Uh, And one of those that it's not a surprise that he's impressed, but wow, what an impact he's had on the Premier League. And I think looking round, all of us have him in our fantasy football team. Yeah, he's slotted brilliantly into the City team. You can't argue with that. One word of warning, though. Remember, Torres had a brilliant first season with Liverpool, maybe even a first couple of seasons, and then the wheels fell off. But if we're looking at now, Aguero, yeah, he's certainly in my fantasy team, and he'll be staying there until uh, until he loses his scoring boots, although I just can't see that happening. Um, yeah, eight goals so far, and I made a very bold prediction on this one as well, that he might get the player of the year, PFA player of the year, but we'll see whether that happens. I wanted to pick out two goalkeepers, because I think sometimes they're the forgotten men, aren't they, in football? Uh, John Ruddy from Norwich, uh, who, although they haven't kept a clean sheet, he's made some phenomenal saves against real fierce opposition as well for them, returning, not, let's not forget, back-to-back promotions for them. So Premier League, to, to get used to that, is uh, obviously quite a tall order. And Paddy Kenny, I think QPR have set themselves up as a great defensive unit, and he seems to really dictate from the back. Um, he's kept clean sheets against Everton, Newcastle and Wolves, and I, I honestly think that these two keepers had Arsene Venn took note a couple of seasons ago they might have been great purchases yeah I completely agree with you and I think it's difficult for young um, goalkeepers as well because obviously a big part of goalkeeping is confidence and the team having confidence in you so I think to come in and make an impact so early on is very impressive and definitely think they're two to watch so my player from the Premier League to pick out is Emmanuel Adebayor. So he uh, uh, was loaned out from City to Real Madrid last season and is now on loan uh, to Spurs. And, and, and what interests me immediately um, and perhaps surprised me a little bit, if I'm totally honest, is uh, before he was signed by Harry Redknapp, uh, Harry said that he'd, he'd had a discussion with um, uh, Vidic and Ferdinand at some event or other and uh, asked their opinion of him. And they said, actually, he's the, he's the striker forward who we find most difficult to play against and I was quite intrigued by that now he's certainly made a brilliant start three goals in three games scored on his debut against Wolves had two against Liverpool now I've been on holiday and I almost fell off my sun lounger when the result 4-0 came in Tottenham Liverpool I thought oh my goodness me but I had a sneaking suspicion that Adebayor would come in and come in and make an impact he uh he likes it when things are on his side, granted. Um, he's got his confidence back up playing for him for Real Madrid uh, under the guise of Mourinho as well. You know, a nice atmosphere there. Uh, and they like to keep the team unified. So he would have felt his value there. I just hope that it's the same for Harry Redknapp. And I hope that Harry is able to deal with him 
Yeah, on that subject, I think you're a very brave girl picking out Adebayor. I've got to say that, Kate. For me, a player who is lazy, difficult to manage, and we're talking about him in September, October, but I think if we were to talk about him in December, January, he will be completely off our radar because he will have lost interest by then. And Harry Redknapp, if he can keep him focused and dedicated to the game of football, which he seems to have a real problem with, then let's make him England manager because Adebayor, he jumps from one ship to another he annoys me school teacher oh I I I really really loathe this player for some reasons not only for scoring on his debut against Wolves because I'm a Wolves fan we ought to get the allegiances out of the way already so Kate you're Liverpool and uh, Zoe is Watford fan but I I actually really get frustrated with him as a player because his ability I would never question with you Kate and I can understand completely why you picked him out but yeah in December January I bet you he stopped scoring this is what Adibayor does. He comes into a team, he scores goals, he's the star, everyone loves him, all the fans are chanting about him from the stands. And then, as Lindsay says, he loses interest. I think he's a lazy player. I don't think anyone ever wants to keep him. And it will be incredibly interesting to see where we are in December, January this, because, I don't know, I, I definitely wouldn't be betting for him even necessarily staying at Spurs. But keep him in mind, girls, for your pub quiz question at Christmas or when you're doing Trivial Pursuit round with the family because he is going to be that player in the future that will be the answer to which Premier League player have played for the most clubs and jump ship the most. Um, we will actually move on to another player. Um, I wanted to, to pick out um, someone from the Championship. Now, this is a player that I have watched over numerous seasons from the early days of Dagenham and Redbridge. And his injection of pace, his understanding of the game, that kind of footballing brain, a bit Teddy Sheringham-esque, has impressed me uh, through his time at Peterborough where he scored 99 goals in 212 appearances. And if you're going along with me on this in the podcast, yes, I'm... The Offside Rule. We get it with Lindsay Hooper. Hello and welcome to our first ever The Offside Rule We Get It podcast. Each week I'll chat to someone from the footballing world, be it a player, manager or significant other, I'll keep you guessing, and promise to get plenty of opinion on some hot topics. This week it's Barnett and former Fulham and Northern Ireland boss Laurie Sanchez. Plus I'll hold my very own round table every week where I speak to friends who I work with in football and debate the finer points of the beautiful game. Finally, if you're an aspiring sports broadcaster, stay tuned to the end of each podcast and I'll be speaking to colleagues and peers as I'm on the road and give you some further insight into landing your dream job. This week it's Match of the Day commentator Steve Bauer. Thanks to everyone who's involved with this podcast so let's get on with it. If you're a football fan whether you're male, female or alien this podcast is for you to enjoy and if you don't then please email your complaints to keysandgray at talksport.co.uk Well we're kicking off with my interview with Laurie Sanchez. The female take on football. I'm at Barnett's training ground, The Hive, with manager Laurie Sanchez, who's kindly taken some time out to talk football. We'll start with the Premier League season, five weeks in, and already it looks like the Manchester teams are dominating. What have you made of it all? Well, Manchester United, obviously, you know, they were always going to be there and thereabouts. Um, Anybody that finishes above Manchester United will win the title, I think. And Manchester City are the one team that look as though they've invested enough in their team. They've got a manager that's capable of doing it, and they've got players with, obviously, now capable of winning the title. So... I wouldn't be surprised, and I think anybody would be surprised that the two Manchester clubs would be top of the table come the end of the season. In which order? We've yet to make a, a decision on that. But obviously anything that Manchester City have done, Manchester United have topped it later on in the afternoon. So, as I say, if you finish above United, you win the title. 
brings us on nicely because the Premier League, yeah, a global attraction to it. Um, lots of money spent and perhaps most of the, the big players around the world want to come and play here. However, you've got to look at La Liga for turning out the best players in the world at the moment and certainly the Spanish squad. Uh, Barcelona, let's look at them as a side and talk about Champions League for a second because we talk of these kind of purple patches and spells for different eras. You, you talk about your Manchester United era of Skulls, Giggs and mm. Beckham and Neville brothers. There seems to be something to this Barcelona squad at the moment, doesn't there? That means that they're going to have a few years of, at the top. Without doubt. And, you know, they do spend money. Um, so they can retain their top players, players like Messi. I think football there, there is an awful lot to do with the Catalan area. That it, It's more than football. It is, it is a sort of... That, that's how those people in that part of the world hold their head high. So there's, there's a lot of pressure on, on the players and they perform fantastically well for it. It is, uh, you know, you can't, it's hard to compare teams because you can only be the best team you can at the era you're in. But I think they are probably the best, well, they're certainly the best team of this generation and probably would be up there, you know, with the Real Madrid team in the, in the 50s um, as probably the best team of all time, you know. So you, you, you've got to you've got to give them fantastic credit. And they, they have a system and they're going to persevere with it and, and it's, it's, it's brought them great success. I went to the Champions League final at Wembley. Um, £300 a ticket I paid. It was an expensive night. <laughs> but it was, you know, I'm, I got my brother's ticket and he said, £300 for a game. I've never paid £300 for a game in my life, but I'll go, but give me a ticket. So he came along and he turned to me at half-time and said, I've got to say that... I'd never paid £300 for a ticket, but I've got to say this was worth it. It was well worth it. I'm pleased I was here to... Not just the game, but the atmosphere. I think a lot of things came together. I think Wembley came of age that game. I mean, I'd been to Wembley before, and it's it, you know, people were saying it wasn't the old Wembley, there's the atmosphere. But I think that night, the Champions League final, with a match on the pitch and the support on both sides, I thought um, they made a very, very, very good English team look very, very ordinary. And they did that at Real Madrid early in the season as well. From watching from the comfort of my sofa, where you'll be able to tell me from the stands, uh, one of the things that I find is this hysteria around Messi, which, of course, is justified. He's one of the greatest, and he will go down as one of the greatest players. But Barcelona as a squad, I mean, Daniel Elves and um, David Villa on that night, I just thought that there were, there were players... It wasn't all about Messi. There were just so many of them that were just playing out their skin, and it seems that his name just always comes top of the list. It does, because he scored 45 goals last season, doesn't he? I mean, you know, if you were to say Lionel Messi's a centre-forward, you wouldn't say he's a centre-forward at five foot five, um, He's not an archetype centre-forward. He doesn't play as an out-and-out centre-forward. He plays in this sort of wandering little position, um, but it's in the centre of the field. And to score 45 goals is phenomenal. And, and he turned that game with one piece of genius. There are some fantastic players in that squad, but when you see him close up, you can understand why he gets all the acclaim he does. But he himself, I think, has said um, the best player he's ever played with is, is Iniesta, isn't he? I think mm -hmm. he said he's the best player in the world. But you've got Iniesta and Messi in the same team and Silva, and, you know, th th you just go through. I mean, the very fact that they played... I was, the game the other night, they played nine midfield players or what you consider midfield players in some shape or form, either defensive or attacking midfield players. And Messi comes into that attacking midfield player type of scenario um, in their game, um, and, and, and they won that 5-0 or 6-0, whatever it was, in the opening of uh, La Liga. Just shows what a phenomenal team they are. Um, so it's a fantastic club. Anybody who's been to the new Camp, I, I went there before we played the semi-final against Liverpool. Liverpool playing the UEFA Cup on the Thursday night, and... So we were in Spain on a training camp and I went to New Camp to watch Barcelona play Liverpool that night and they were fantastic that night. And it's, a, it's just a fantastic city um, with a fantastic ground, with a fantastic football club.
mm. with a fantastic team all at the same time. And, you know, it must be nice to be a Barcelona fan. Let's move on to England, a recent international break. And there is always speculation concerning Fabio Capello's replacement successor. The odds very recently shortened for Harry Redknapp to take over that role, which must cause some upset at Tottenham. I mean, for you as a manager, you wouldn't want that at your club, would you, all that speculation? Um, no, but it means two things. It means your manager's doing well. And the teams, and if your manager's doing well, the team's doing well. So you you got to take it that if your manager's doing well, he's English. You know there's probably going to be an English appointment next time round because, not because of the backlash against um, Capello, but I think it's only right that a major nation has one of their owners, their manager. Um, not the best man for the job. No, no. Um, you'd like to think that the best man for the job is is, is English, but I also, th- I mean, I think I, I read a quote from Gareth Southgate that he said, "International football is about." The best English coach, the best English player, the best English doctor, best English physio, best English masseur, best English manager. If it's not, then you're playing Champions League. And I think he's right to a certain extent. I, th- I think I would, I would agree with that. Um, you don't look at any other major nation in the world having a foreigner in charge of them. Isn't that quite ideal, though? Isn't that an ideal view? I mean, nowadays... But that should be the, that's, that's, that's what international football should be about. It should be the best of what you've got. And if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. And then you accept it and get on with it. I don't think... And it hasn't improved the situation bringing in Sven or Capello on the biggest international contracts in the world. They've still got to work with the same players. You know? And to bring in foreign staff, you know, they, they've done no better than Sir Ralph Ramsey, who won it in '66. So... You know, I, I think if you're going to fail, fail with English people in charge. Or not fail, but do the best you can with the English people in charge because that's what international football's about, international football. Do you think any of their shortcomings, whether we're talking about Sven or Capello, came because their heart wasn't quite in it, they hadn't got that English uh, kind of loyalty, if you like? Or do you think that this is a difficult squad of players to manage? I mean, your likes of... Terry, Gerard, um, Beckham even, and, and the papers and the attention that they get in the media frenzy. It's a hard group of players to manage, isn't it? Um, that's what they're paid for. That's why you paid £6 million. And, you know, it's not as if they haven't managed top players in their careers before. I mean, they've, they've, they've worked in Italy, you know, they've worked in Spain, they've won the championships. They're working with top players day in and day out. International management is a different job completely to club management. I think it takes you one campaign to learn it, and then you've got one campaign to do it. And you, if you win it, you might have another campaign. If you don't, then it has to be turned over again. It is a learning process, no matter where you've been. And I found that when I, was in Tash- when I was in Northern Ireland, it took me two years to find out all the ins and outs because you don't have a lot of time with a player. So you need to be able to bring down every training session to really dilute it to what you want to get out of it. Whereas I train every day here at Barnet with the players. You can spend a day mucking about here, mucking about there, doing stuff that is irrelevant. But every training session with an international team, you only get... Probably, if you're with a team 10 days, you probably get six or seven training sessions um, of any value where you've got every player available to you, you know, injuries free and that. And you've got to make, so that's an hour and a half. You've got eight, nine, ten hours every two months to make it count. Mm. Um, and you have to distill what you want down very, very specifically. And it takes you two years to learn learn that, no matter where you come from. Um, and then your second time round, you're hoping you're avoiding fitness. You've got a group of players you want. And then you go from there, you build on that. Um, and with England, as I say, you know, fourth in the world, they should be, with an average manager in charge, they should be quarterfinals, World Cup, European Championships every time. Um, European Championships should be further than that because they're, they're, they're taking out the, the Brazils and Argentinas of this world. So you say, you say basically probably top four team in Europe, 
So they should be semi-finals. Worldwide, World Cups, top eight team in the world. They should be quarter-finals. That should be their minimum criteria. It doesn't explain, though, the Capello and Sven era, really, does it? Because they didn't get much further than those stages. I mean, certainly the World Cup last time round was a massive disappointment. Just on reflection of all that, they were managers with great credentials and anyone around the world would have given their right arm to have them in charge of their national squad. Which made me think, is there something pinpointed within this squad, within this framework? Within, is it passion? Is it dedication? Because there has to be something to explain why we're not getting any further. And do you honestly think, because I don't, that Harry Redknapp can get more out of them? What you would say is there's an awful lot of organisation and stuff that you never think of as a manager around preparing for a World Cup and, and European Championship. I mean, the, the term used is competition-hardened. And what happens with, if you take the world champions, European champions, Spain, most of their players, Torres, Villa, Iniesta, Xavi, all these players, had won under-17, under-19, under-21 world and European youth championship titles. So they knew what tournament play was about. So they, you know, they didn't go into a tournament once every two years and suddenly find out what it was. They had progressed naturally through winning t- tournaments at youth level as a team... Um, in two-week, three-week periods of, of high-intensity football and knew how to get there. So when they stepped up to European and World Cups, it wasn't an awful lot different. Whereas England players, you, they all pull out of the under-21s. They all pull out of the, the, the one in um, Colombia, the under-20s this year. I mean, were there 20 pullouts or something? Yeah. So those players never, ever get competition, you know, that three-week competition experience. And then you go to a World Cup finals and they're learning, they're learning like the manager for the first time what it's like, whereas the Spanish system has put that all in place. So when they come to the European Championship finals, they know exactly what to do. They know exactly that because they've won it at all previous levels and then they step up and win that, then they step up and win the World Cup and then they'll be favourites when we come back to the Europeans again. Um, and that is something that the English system lets down. And on that note, the European model sees the youth kind of squads develop up to 21 I mean here and you'll know from being at Barnet and the other clubs that you've been at like Fulham that players get released at their 18 and do you not think that that three-year gap could be closed and we could join Europe on that that level I understand what's saying I mean uh, for competitions by the time they're 21 I mean I once had a chat with David Platt and he I said was there a problem you know running under 21s when you've got some millionaires in there and then some players that aren't he said there was a problem with it when there were some players um, millionaires and some not. But he says not a problem now because they're all millionaires, and they basically are. You, you, you see that the biggest transfers this summer have gone to under twenty ones. You know Jones, um, Henderson, Henderson. You know they, they, they've come back for on the back of the under twenty one. Not particularly great performances in it to be top paid players in the Premier League. So I don't think at that top level the development stops because what happens is they step and play first team football, which isn't a major problem. But what should happen is they don't play under-21 international football, they go straight into the first international team. That's the problem, and, and something needs to be done. You know, you've got Theo Walcott was withdrawn from the under-21s and playing in the World Cup or in the England squad at when he was seven, 17, when really he shouldn't have been there. He should have been developing. And by the time they come through at 21, they should have had 20 caps, under-21 caps under them, and then they step up to the first team. But we rush straight from, it's the great new talent, into the first team. And Theo Walcott, is he an England regular? Is he an Arsenal regular, even now? I mean, how many years later is this? Since Germany, 96, you know? And he's still, yes, probably a regular for Arsenal. He's but still he dribbling and looking at yeah, his feet. Yeah. So, <laughs> on the few occasions I've seen. So there are, there are, there are, you know, blaming the manager is one thing and, and the manager obviously falls or dies by where he finishes, especially when you're being paid that amount of money. But the system in place to support the manager is an awful lot of things. 
has a lot to answer and a lot of that to do is with how Premier League clubs treat international football all round. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. The female take on football. Next up, it's Lindsay's Round Table, and this week I'm joined by Zoe Aminsky and Kate Borsay to debate some footballing topics. As this is the very first The Offside Rule podcast, I think we should reflect on things so far this season. Let's start Premier League players and players that have impressed you. We'll start with Zoe. Well, I don't think you can even mention this subject without thinking Sergio Aguero. I mean, the fact that every time you see Man City have scored, you almost presume that Aguero will be on the score sheet to the extent that when he didn't score this weekend, there was shock when you saw that Man City had two goals and Aguero wasn't one of them. He just, I think, is a phenomenal purchase for Man City. And I think when you consider his transfer fee was similar to that of Andy Carroll, there's no question that Aguero, I think, was the, the better purchase. I think that we haven't even touched on what he's capable of and it'll be interesting, very interesting to see how he progresses over the season. I mean, we all know, knew that he was a great player in Argentina and I've uh, seen him playing alongside Tevez a few times in tournaments. Uh, and one of those that it's not a surprise that he's impressed, but wow, what an impact he's had on the Premier League. And I think looking round, all of us have him in our fantasy football team. Yeah, he's slotted brilliantly into the City team. You can't argue with that. One word of warning, though. Remember, Torres had a brilliant first season with Liverpool, maybe even a first couple of seasons, and then the wheels fell off. But if we're looking at it now, Aguero, yep, he's certainly in my fantasy team, and he'll be staying there until uh, until he loses his scoring boots, although I just can't see that happening. Um, yeah, eight goals so far, and I made a very bold prediction on this one as well, that he might get the player of the year, PFA player of the year, but we'll see whether that happens. I wanted to pick out two goalkeepers, because I think sometimes they're the forgotten men aren't they in football uh, John Ruddy from Norwich uh, who although they haven't kept a clean sheet he's made some phenomenal saves against real fierce opposition as well for them returning not let's not forget back-to-back promotions for them so Premier League to, to get used to that is uh, obviously quite a tall order and Paddy Kenny I think QPR have set themselves up as a great defensive unit and he seems to really dictate from the back um, he's kept clean sheets against Everton Newcastle and Wolves and I, I honestly think that these two keepers had Arsene Venn took note a couple of seasons ago they might have been great purchases yeah I completely agree with you and I think it's difficult for young um, goalkeepers as well because obviously a big part of goalkeeping is confidence and the team having confidence in you so I think to come in and make an impact so early on is very impressive and definitely think they're two to watch so my player from the Premier League to pick out is Emmanuel Adebayor. So he uh, uh, was loaned out from City to Real Madrid last season and is now on loan uh, to Spurs. And, and, and what interests me immediately um, and perhaps surprised me a little bit, if I'm totally honest, is uh, before he was signed by Harry Redknapp, uh, Harry said that he'd, he'd had a discussion with um, uh, Vidic and Ferdinand at some event or other and uh, asked their opinion of him. And they said, actually, he's the, he's the striker forward who we find most difficult to play against and I was quite intrigued by that now he's certainly made a brilliant start three goals in three games scored on his debut against Wolves had two against Liverpool now I've been on holiday and I almost fell off my sun lounger when the result 4-0 came in Tottenham Liverpool I thought oh my goodness me but I had a sneaking suspicion that Adebayor would come in and come in and make an impact he uh he likes it when things are on his side, granted. Um, he's got his confidence back up playing for him for Real Madrid. Uh under the guise of Mourinho as well, you know, a nice atmosphere there uh, and they like to keep the team unified. So he would have felt his value there. I just hope that it's the same for Harry Redknapp and I hope that Harry 
is able to deal with him. Yeah, on that subject, I think you're a very brave girl picking out Adebayor. I've got to say that, Kate. For me, a player who is lazy, difficult to manage, and we're talking about him in September, October, but I think if we were to talk about him in December, January, he will be completely off our radar because he will have lost interest by then. And Harry Redknapp, if he can keep him focused and dedicated to the game of football, which he seems to have a real problem with, then let's make him England manager because Adebayor, he jumps from one ship to another he annoys me school teacher oh I I I really really loathe this player for some reasons not only for scoring on his debut against Wolves because I'm a Wolves fan we ought to get the allegiances out of the way already so Kate you're Liverpool and uh, Zoe is Watford fan but I I actually really get frustrated with him as a player because his ability I would never question with you Kate and I can understand completely why you picked him out but yeah in December January I bet you he stopped scoring this is what Adibayor does. He comes into a team, he scores goals, he's the star, everyone loves him, all the fans are chanting about him from the stands. And then, as Lindsay says, he loses interest. I think he's a lazy player. I don't think anyone ever wants to keep him. And it will be incredibly interesting to see where we are in December, January this, because, I don't know, I, I definitely wouldn't be betting for him even necessarily staying at Spurs. But keep him in mind, girls, for your pub quiz question at Christmas or when you're doing Trivial Pursuit round with the family because he is going to be that player in the future that will be the answer to which Premier League player have played for the most clubs and jump ship the most. Um, we will actually move on to another player. Um, I wanted to, to pick out um, someone from the Championship. Now, this is a player that I have watched over numerous seasons from the early days of Dagenham and Redbridge. And his injection of pace, his understanding of the game, that kind of footballing brain, a bit Teddy Sheringham-esque, has impressed me uh, through his time at Peterborough, where he scored 99 goals in 212 appearances. And if you're going along with me on this in the podcast, yes, I'm talking about Brighton's Craig McHale-Smith. He scored four in eight league games, five in 10 games in total for Brighton, and has just adjusted so quickly. My only question mark over this player is, is he Premier League standard? You know, we've had Sylvan Ebanks, Blake, who came into the Premier League, Danny Graham, who I'm sure for Swansea will have a great season, but perhaps not going to be firing you know into double figures and I don't know whether he would make an impact in the Premier League but as a championship player you can't get better well interestingly in the transfer window just gone uh, Mikhail Smith was rumoured alongside so many clubs inclusive of a couple of Premier League teams so I was a little surprised when he did end up going to Brighton which was definitely wasn't the biggest club after him but it seems to have been the right choice for him and maybe he needs that extra season in the Championship to really build up his status and then go into a Premier League team um, and maybe make an impact there. So I'll be very interested to see where he goes, if anywhere, next summer. So I'll move on to my player that I've picked out from the Championship and that's Adam Rooney. Was out of contract at Inverness at the end of the season. Picked up for nothing by Birmingham. Two goals in nine appearances. Both those goals in August, so he needs to settle in a bit. He certainly got off to a great start. He's only 23, so I think this guy would be an interesting watch. I wouldn't call him a Premier League player. I'd say definitely Championship. A good Championship prospect. Um, if he can hit the ground running um, and find some form um, and, and also confidence as well. Well, I mean, he's um, an ex-Stoke trainee, played for Inverness, uh, was in the top five goal scorers overall in the SPL last season. So we know he's got the ability there. If he works with Hewton and with the team there at Birmingham, he could certainly be a very canny investment. 
I've not seen too much of Adam Rooney, although I've watched a few games, but uh, the fact that he shares a surname with Wayne Rooney <laughs> might stand in his uh, history books kind of way. But I, th- I think Adam Rooney, good shout. I mean, Birmingham, they, uh, Chris Wood as well. Um, Chris Hutton signed, and he's been firing in since losing quite a few key players. So I think he'll be an important player for Birmingham. We'll move on to injury comebacks and just slightly touch on the Carling Cup phenomenon that seemed to throw up Michael Owen back as a name on headlines. I never thought he'd be on back pages again so quickly. Um, Torrey, of course, came back after a suspension. Um, Owen Hargreaves and Craig Bellamy as well. I mean, did these impress you? Were these players that you think could be in a starting lineup? I mean, for me, I'll um, lay my gauntlet down. I think Craig Bellamy certainly should be in Liverpool's starting lineup after his performance. I think he's one of those players that can slot in and at the moment is impressive me more than Andy Carroll I think he perhaps could link up with uh, Suarez a bit better and is is that type of player that should be playing week in week out Hargreaves scoring on his debut for me not as impressive I mean I thought it was a spectacular goal but coming back after all that time out with injury I don't think he'd go straight into a starting lineup and Michael Owen fringe player now from for my terms I think his interests lie elsewhere in horse racing to be honest but he scored a double scored a brace which I thought was great but maybe a, a great substitute for first I think Michael Owen's a perfect player for Fergie. He loves to score goals, will always score goals. He is perfect as an extra player for Fergie, basically. I think that as well, the fact that he's got age on his side in terms of confidence and maybe leading more youthful side in matches such as the Carling Cup really will help Man United. So I think rather than use up players that he needs to save for big Premier League games, he can use the likes of Michael Owen to go out there, score goals, progress the team through the cup. And, you know, Michael Owen um, isn't getting any younger. It's probably a perfect situation for him as well. Yeah, I think if you're looking to teach some of your youngsters a thing or two, playing with the likes of Michael Owen is certainly a good a good move. He's a bit of a super sub, isn't he? Um, he's a forward, so he's never going to have enough leg on him, really, to make consistent amounts of starts. He's just a useful trick up uh, Ferguson's sleeve, really, for the likes of the Carling Cup, etc. I wanted to mention Owen Hargreaves, who I just can't look at the same way since I saw him do his Pilates stretches <laughs> on the internet. I, I mean, he, w- what you have to remember, you know, with this guy is it's a great story, but it's just back page fluff, isn't it, really? I mean, the guy's played 10 minutes of action in the last three years, pretty much. And it's great. It's a brilliant story. You know, he comes on and scores uh, once against Birmingham in the in the Carling Cup. He played 57 minutes of action. Fair enough. But he's not registered in City's Champions League squad. And him moving from United across to City was, you know, again, a great story. A good signing for City. You have to remember there as well that their clear objective is to have uh, very, very able top-class players, at least two in every position, so that if he's ever called onto the pitch halfway through a game or as a super sub, great. Could he make consistent starts? No, I don't think so. I think overall, maybe the Carling Cup competition is a difficult one to judge players on in comparison to the Premier League. Uh, thanks very much for joining me, girls, and we'll do this again. Roundtable will be back. Top stuff. Woo! <laughs> thanks very much. The female take on football. I'm sat with Steve Bauer, who's a football commentator for Match of the Day, also presents all the Blue Square Bet Premier footage, which is how I know you, Steve. Lots of people would wonder, how did you get into football commentating? Good question. Um, I went through the, I'm showing my age a bit here, the time-old local radio route. I was in my local radio station, Radio City in Liverpool, when I was 14, 13, something like that. Making the tea, running round, listening, looking, learning... And it just developed from there. I think I did my first voice thing when I was 16. 
and used to read the classified results. Then started going to a few games, doing a few reports, and just got loads of invaluable experience, really, while I was still doing exams at school for two or three years. Then I took a year out from going to university because I was getting at least two, if not three, shifts a week in broadcasting at a really good station, covering Liverpool, Everton, Tranmere, Grand National, Rugby League. And uh, somebody left. They didn't advertise the position. They offered it to me. And I got where I needed to be um, without getting my degree. So um, off I went. That was 19 years ago. Yeah, I told my age as well. Uh, so how do you get to the dizzying heights of Match of the Day? Because I reckon as a football commentator, that's as good as it gets. It is, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the show that you grew up watching because in, when I was growing up, that was the only show. When there was no satellite TV, there was no Five Live, there was no Talk Sport. Not just saying it because I broadcast on it, but, you know, you speak to most football fans, that is the show every weekend. Four and a half million people think so every weekend. So um, it's, it's fantastic. It doesn't get any better than that. Doing a live game in the World Cup in South Africa on, on BBC for, for Match the Day was... Uh, was right up there, you know, in terms of in terms of satisfaction. But you don't. It's like a player when you're playing. You don't really think about it until you're asked about it. It's your job, and you go from week to week. You're only as good as your last game. And uh, you know, they're great people to work for, and you know, it's great great profile, and it's very enjoyable. There's flair, there's skill involved in the job that you do. You have to be very articulate and be able to describe things in numerous different ways and angles. How did you practice that? Was it one of those when you did it off the television? Did you listen to radio? How did you develop that skill? Not sure, really. I don't think it's something you consciously do. I think it's something that's in you. You know, you've got to have that that passion, that desire, rather than sitting down one day and go, right, how do I do this? It, it, it just comes out. There's a lot of similarities to actually playing the game. If you prepare properly, anyone can make mistakes like a player, but if you prepare properly, then in you your mind you've got um, you've got a, the, the best chance of, of having a good game but yeah as a kid I used to run around the garden and commentate to myself and yes you, you know watch things on the telly and all that kind of thing so I think it's just in you you know and um, it's something you you develop from there really we're sat here and you're about to watch Kidderminster Harriers play and you're going to commentate on that as well as present. And, of course, that's a completely differently. We're at the other end of the league compared to Premier League matches. Is that more difficult, this non-league? In a way, it is, because obviously <clears throat> in terms of, of knowledge and homework and, and preparation and identifying players, it, it can be. But also, it's easier in a way because you're telling people things that they don't necessarily know because, you know, there may be fans of other clubs who, know, who don't know the clubs that are playing. They may be coming into the league, which a lot of people do if there's nothing else on. Oh, I fancy a bit of conference football or blue square bet football. Whereas if you turn up at Chelsea, where I was on Saturday, apart from, you know, a most recent stat, there's nothing you can really tell anyone about Fernando Torres. You don't need to know he's 27 and from Spain and only scored one goal in the last 12 games because that's all over the world. It's all over the media everywhere. So sometimes it can be harder to add something to a picture of Fernando Torres than it is to a Kidderminster Harriers striker because you, you're actually informing people about that Kidderminster Harriers striker. So in that sense, it's, it's different. But I, I love this league and you know, I've watched it quite a bit over the years and I've worked in it four or five seasons now as well. And I honestly enjoy it just as much as, as doing a Premier League game for Max today because it's people's life. You know, you see people here, they've, they've been supporting it for 30, 40 years. The players are honest. They need the money to pay the mortgage. If someone gets tackled, there's no rolling around. There's no back chat. Um, it's extremely competitive. And this season, as you've seen, it's wide open. There isn't a Man United or 
in this season's last season's league at Crawley Town, where you think, well, who's going to finish second? It's totally open. Anyone can beat anyone. You know, there's some fantastic games. Um, there's goals being scored. So, um, so I absolutely love it. I've got a real passion for it. Finally, it's going to be really difficult for you to do, but in all your time commentating, what's a moment that has stood out in the memory? It's difficult to to pinpoint one, really. I mean, the, there's different ones in in sort of different stages as, as I've done. I mean, going back to the radio days, as you know, Everton winning the FA Cup in 1995 and they beat Man United when nobody expected them to and being on the open top bus with them the next day and being part of that story was a very early one. Man United winning the treble and commentating on all those three games and then coming back with them on the bus from Barcelona and going around Manchester to 150,000 people. I mean, one of them... Last summer, we were live on the BBC when America scored in the last minute, which meant that England played Germany, which was a massive moment. Obviously, we all know what happened after that. I mean, that Landon Donovan scored, and that was a massive adrenaline rush for me at the time. And interviews that I've done as well, you know, world exclusive with David Beckham when he left Man United... Alex Ferguson saying he was going to retire and then saying he's not. You know, Roy Keane, Prawn Sandwich Brigade. You know, they're all they're all great memories. Because when when someone says something like that, you get a shiver up your spine. And think, my God, this is this is world news, you know. And he's saying it to me, so it's difficult to pinpoint one. I mean, they're all great moments I've just reeled off. I haven't really answered your question, but I suppose when I got a Solskjaer scored that goal in Barcelona to win the European Cup and the treble for Man United is probably a moment that will never happen again. It might do, but. They'd have to go some. So I'd, if you push me for one, I'd probably say that. A few Man United stories. I'm wondering if you know the truth behind the whole David Beckham and Fergie throwing the football boot across the dressing room. Nobody knows the exact truth, but I think over the years it's got exaggerated. Um, yes, he was hit. Yes, there was a big argument. But uh, the manager apologised and uh, he didn't mean to do it. And I think if you speak to David now, he's got the absolute utmost respect for, for Sir Alex Ferguson and... You know, they met a couple of times last year when uh, when he was over back in England training with Tottenham. And like anything else, time's a healer. The PA system's firing up. That's our cue to get on with our other jobs. Thanks very much. No problem, Lindsay. The female take on football. Thanks to Steve, Zoe, Kate, Laurie Sanchez and producer Heather for contributing to the first Offside Rule We Get It podcast. Get downloading again next week and please tell your friends about us. The Offside Rule We Get It is a podcast produced by Heather Davies and Lindsay Hooper. (laughs) 